You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn to Micah, the prophet, chapter 4. And I'll extend to you the same invitation that Mike extends to people. If you don't know where the prophet of Micah is, that is okay. We're not here to judge you for not knowing where Old Testament prophets are. Use that table of contents, get to it. Or you're like, hey, I bring, a, I bring my phone. I don't have to worry about any of that. That's great too. Uh, and so we will be uh, in Micah 4 camping out the rest of the time. And if you have not been with us, we have been walking through a Sunday morning series looking chapter by chapter at this book. And if you haven't been with us the last three weeks, we have, what we have seen so far is that the prophet Micah brings some serious charges against the leadership and people of God who are experiencing prosperity, growth, and what seemed very healthy from the outside is actually rotting. And these judgment oracles uh, came upon the people as God as the witness against them, which I think is actually one of the more scary verses in the entire book, which it came just two verses in, in chapter 1, if you want to take a look, is, is God is on the witness stand against these people, and he is the one saying, this is what my issue is with you. And so verses, or excuse me, chapters 1 through 3 is the judgment upon them. There, it, was the, it was due to their actions, both against God and neighbor. There was idolatry. There was oppression in the form of robbing inheritance and land. There was false prophecy. There was a minimization of sin. And my wife actually pointed, out, pointed this out to me this week as we were talking about this. I, I check, every, all my heresy check is through my wife, uh, just to let you know, um, is she she. She took me to Ezekiel chapter 34, and, and she said, this is a really good characterization of the leaders of this time, in which, I'm not going to read it to you, but just to paraphrase, it's, it's the, the leaders were, were feeding themselves and not the flocks. They were gathering the best for themselves and letting the people that they were supposed to care for and love starve. And, and it was characterized as they were praying on the weak instead of caring for them. Instead of blessing the nations through the God of Israel, they were conforming to the nations around them. And God's people, who were supposed to reflect a greater kingdom, reflect their creator God, were looking a whole lot like their neighbor's. And so they were sinning against the God in which they were called to love and reflect, which will result in their exile. So what God does is pronounce judgment upon them. And what we have tried to do is bring forth one of the most prominent tensions in all of Scripture. It's this idea of judgment and hope. And what this is, and I'm going to come back to this throughout this message, is just a picture of of the garden narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is that there's judgment for our sin, but there's these slivers of hope that the Lord brings us back to in his word. 
And today, we swing towards that hope. Mike got all the judgment, right? That was fun for him. But now, we get to talk about hope this morning. But we cannot forget what lies behind. We ended chapter 3 with a promise of coming judgment because of the sin in the midst of their people. But today, chapter 4 brings us a glimpse into the hope of restoration. Gregory Gansel in his book, Our Deepest Desires, says this, The fit between our deepest longings and the Christian story is striking. I want you to think about that for just a second. The hope of restoration is something that strikes at the very core of what it means to be human. What's common among all of us is that we possess a narrative, a story as to how things will be restored. Everybody in here could articulate this. But the ideology or the hope that you're placing your your life in is going to look a little different. So underneath every ideology, every narrative, every theory for, for promising deliverance is this idea that if you subscribe to this, you will eventually have freedom and wholeness. You could be a Buddhist, you could be a Hindu, you could be agnostic, you could be whatever you want. Every worldview at its core has a promise of deliverance, has a promise of flourishing and restoration. It doesn't matter what line of the political party you fall into, each one of them will promise this is the way to flourishing. And so there's this narrative for why you exist, how the world works, why it was created, what is wrong, what, how, how do you define sin, and what's the evil that you must be delivered from, and how this deliverance will eventually happen. And every, like I said, political movement, every promise of sexual fulfillment, every ideology of social justice has this at its core. You know why? Because it's human. It's a human desire to be made whole, to seek deliverance. And here's here's the kind of hook this morning for you, that you may be walking into this room, sitting in this chair, listening to my voice, and falling prey to an ideology where you go, you know what? It's not fulfilling me. They've made some promises to me, and guess what's happening? I keep falling on my face trying to go through with this. And let me just tell you, the story of Christianity is so compelling is because it's a unique story. It gives you a creation account, a God that created all things good. It gives you a purpose to reflect him and to love him. It tells you what is wrong, sin, and it tells you how things will be made whole again. And it's to that topic we turn. And this is why Micah chapter 4 is so shocking, because in the midst of these judgment oracles, we see an oracle of hope. We see a piece of the Christian story. So the first five verses speak to the restoration of God's people. And so let's read this, these first five verses, to just give us an idea of the landscape of what's going on. 
Okay, verse 1 says this, and I'm reading from the NIV this morning. It says this, is, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Micah begins this oracle by announcing, in the last days. This phrase simply means a future time, some future moment. However, looking at the context in which they would know, we can be sure that it's pointing towards a time of messianic Days, a messianic era from which the scriptures would point towards a Messiah, a king that comes. And there will be a point when this king, this Messiah comes and something happens with his presence. So when this king comes, some sort of restoration will begin. And so when we see this in verse 1... It says the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. You see, this is highly symbolic language here. Because what Micah is getting at is this idea of God and people dwelling together. You see, God's people streaming towards a place of worship and relationship. And throughout these five verses, you're you're going to see this language that points towards this time of rest, this time of peace, this time of alignment in word and deed with God as their king. And this picture you see uh, of a time, it points to to something that looks a whole lot like Genesis 1 and 2, or pre-fall. In fact, scholars would speak about this, about Eden, the Garden of Eden, where God and man dwelled together as being the very first temple. Why? Because it is where God and man dwelled together in peace. It was described as God and man walking together. But there was this time when God and man were fully aligned in their purpose and their love. And this was the point of the temple throughout the Old Testament, that God's manifesting presence would break into the world. And it was at this point in the temple where God and man would meet. And our sin against God in the, t- in the garden caused an exile out of the presence of God. It wasn't just leaving a perfect place. It was exiled away from the dwelling place of God. And we have not gotten over that desire today. This is why the Bible would speak about our hearts being filled with eternity. Because instead of bringing life in which we were created to do, we now bring death. 
We bring disorder. We are out of alignment with God. And this is what we see through this book. It's what the judgments are against. It's injustice. It's idolatry. It's disorder. It's violence. It's oppression. It's death. And these things do not characterize the rule and reign of God. And so when you see these words like temple and mountain and Zion and all these things, they're all pointing towards one thing, and that is the hope of God dwelling with his people where disorder and death are no more. And so what Micah is saying is that this dwelling place will be established. This place where God and man can walk in alignment with one another will be fixed. That's what that word means, to set in place. And so what is saying that is that this place will become the supreme place of meeting with God. It's exaltation. It's elevation above all religions. Most of the time, mountains were a place in in the ancient Near East where people would meet with their God. The higher the mountain, the closer they could get with their God. So think about this. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills. God's dwelling place is elevation above all religions. If you contrast that with chapter 1, it says the mountains will, will, will melt like wax. I love what this commentary said. It said, Yahweh's establishing his mountain above all the other mountains is not merely establishing a place for people to come and worship and learn, but it's also condemning and putting to shame all other religions and false gods. There will be no competing with this place. It will be the central meeting place of Yahweh. Because of this, all people want to take a look at it. People will stream to it, which is what we see in verse 2, right? As the nations come and see it, and notice nations, all people, there is a characterization of what will happen on this mountain. And there's this implication in verse 2 that the way of the Lord will be compelling to these people. That they've never seen anything quite like it. And, and as once the law came down for, from Sinai to the people of God so that they could walk in it, the law will come from Mount Zion again so that all people will walk in the Lord. It's a re-giving of the law to say this is the way, this is the path. And this picture here is once again of people properly aligned under God, recognizing his way and his pathway to life. Yet in this place, we see language that goes even further into the garden imagery. There's this peace stemming from God's way of life. Their disorder and chaos is abolished. There's no more war. We will trade our weapons for gardening tools. Weapons of warfare will be useless And this points us back to our initial calling as image bearers in the garden to do what? To cultivate the garden, to have dominion and subdue the earth. All of our time will not be spent training for the next war, the next crisis. This is a peace that comes from utter confidence that there will be no need to be a hoarder. The doomsday preppers are no longer there, as Eugene Peterson would say. 
And isn't this so different than what we have seen, right? God's people are spending their time committing violent acts instead of cultivating shalom and representing God in the world. And God's reign will be marked by rest, sitting, right? Verse 4, peace, security. The vine and the fig tree are, are representations of a place where you can sit and rest under the cover of God's protection, And then he takes us to the, the, the present reality. The nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Walking in the name of the Lord means simply to be in total alignment with God. It's to live out the Shema, to love God and love neighbor wholly. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And this is what restoration begins with. It is this place that God's way will rule, God's authority will be seen, and God's people will follow him. But that is not all, because the restoration will also restore God's reign. That's what we see in verses 6 through 8. So let's look at verses 6 through 8 when he says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. And as for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. And in that day continues this first section as it points to a future time where God's people are portrayed as weak, wounded, scattered sheep among the nations without a shepherd. Yet God will gather those who are limping, those who are lame, those who are cast out, those who are filled with grief, and he's going to use these people as a remnant. And this word remnant is so important. We've already seen it once in Micah, chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. And a remnant is simply a group of people that is left over after some sort of removal. And I was thinking about this in a way that um, I could understand it in my brain. And so uh, I was thinking about the dried up yogurt that my two-year-old throws on the wall while he's eating yogurt and what it takes to to literally try to remove this yogurt from the wall there is always a remnant there is always a remnant of yogurt on our wall if you walk into it that's why we have white yogurt you can't see it okay but there is always this remnant that's going to be that's going to be sticking and this is what judgment is all about where we have said that God hates sin and injustice. God has always operated like this. You think Noah, right? Where wickedness abounded in the world, where God literally says that he felt sorrow for making man, and God's wrath was poured out, yet God singles out a remnant to bring about a rebirth of a new humanity. And you're going to see that picture throughout Genesis and throughout the whole scriptures of God literally judging, bringing back to a remnant so he can rebirth a new humanity. And what's great is that God doesn't go after the varsity uh, team members here. 
He's after those who are crushed, those who are hurting, those who are in grief. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this. He says, I will round up all the hurt and the homeless, everyone that I have bruised or banished. I will transform the battered into a company of the elite. I will make strong nation, I will make a strong nation out of the long lost, a showcase exhibit of God's rule and action as I rule from Mount Zion from here to eternity. It is these people who God will rule over in Mount Zion, in the place, the dwelling place of God and man. God will be their shepherd, their king from that day on and forever. That's why verse 8 is so important. It's the shepherd language. That these shepherds that we saw in Ezekiel 34 are preying on them. That they will, that, that will be no longer existent. The true shepherd will come. The true kingdom that is promised will be restored. A king is going to spring forth that will lead a new humanity. And this is why Micah is so adamant about their current conditions in verses 9 through 12. And what we see in verses 9 through 12, we're not going to read it all. But what we see is a restoration from suffering. Restoration from suffering. You see in verses not, verse 9, it says, why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? They have a king. They just know that their king is leading them into exile because he's not following the way of the Lord. He says, has your ruler perished? That pain seizes you like the woman uh, in labor. Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, but there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. You see, this is so great because what he's saying is there's going to be a judgment that comes that exiles the people. But in the midst of their judgment, what happens? Redemption. Hope. The Lord will redeem you. The Lord will give you strength over your enemies. There will be a time of exile. Your days, like a woman in labor, will be painful. You will go through severe suffering. But understand this. Those people, verses 11 and 12, they don't know the plans. They don't understand They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. I'm telling you what will happen. There will be redemption. Their victory will not be forever. Micah 4 goes into Micah 5, which Griff is going to take next week, which continues the hope oracle, talking about this ruler king that will usher in the the restoration in which we've been talking about. But the story of Christianity finds its uniqueness in the servant king that came as a homeless carpenter. In which he says, I'm representing my father's kingdom. But this kingdom didn't start with him rolling out the red carpet and saying, I'm here, come and worship me. He came in the incarnation as a human, putting other people first. And the story of Christianity finds its uniqueness in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Here is what every other narrative can't give you. It can't give you a Savior that doesn't die. 
Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in leadership of this world. Our hope is not in ideology or movement or low gas prices. The hope of restoration is fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because here, let me tell you what Jesus taught. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God more than anything else. His first words in Matthew were, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He taught his disciples to pray. What? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's what we want to do. We want to parse these things out with the kingdom of God over here and the cross over here. So the message of the gospel is what? Jesus died for your sins. Trust him. Forgive him or forgive yourself, whatever you need to do, and go to heaven. But there is so, there's a grander story that we're missing when we distill the gospel down to that. Because to bring the kingdom of earth is more, of heaven to earth is more than just being nice, doing good things, and bringing peace. The key to the kingdom of God is the cross, it stands in the middle. These two things cannot be separated. And what we see in Micah 4 is ushered in and fulfilled completely by by the coming of Christ. It is secured by his death and resurrection. Because the kingdom of God, the restoring power of God, is seen in the life of Jesus from top to bottom. He is reordering. He's bringing a garden-like presence and Eden, a presence of God, into the world. And so if we were going to walk back up those points that we just made in Micah 4, Jesus is the one that restores us from suffering. He comes to a people waiting. He comes to a people that are beaten down, waiting for their Savior. And hear this, he suffers alongside his people. In so much so that he takes the sufferings of his people upon himself. But he doesn't just restore us from suffering. He restores the reign of God. It is glimpsed in his ministry. As we saw in verses 6 through 8, right? I will gather the lame, assemble the exiles. He restores the lame. What does he do through his ministry? He helps people get back on their feet, literally. He restores the sick. He goes towards those who no one will touch. And Jesus himself says in Luke 5 that, you know, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for the sick. I came for those who are uh, Uh, sinners in need of repentance. But get this, Jesus claims that he is the true shepherd, right? Verse 8, the watchtower over the flock, he is the one. He is the true shepherd that has come to bring in the outcasts, to bring in those who have no shepherd. But his, his ministry, it ends on a cross, And if God's kingdom is about eradicating sin, the cross is judgment and love colliding. It is the judgment of God upon Jesus Christ for your sin, yet the hope, the love of God to put his sin upon Jesus. And that's why Galatians 3 would point us to this idea of Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But don't miss the end in verse 14. 
where it says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the blessing of Abraham? That all nations will dwell with God. (laughs) Jesus came as a servant, was enthroned as a king on the cross. He was exalted on a hill as people mocked him. And when he died, the veil, the temple, tore in two, signaling the presence of God has been made clear through him. He doesn't just restore us from suffering. He doesn't just restore the reign of God, but he restores us. He restores God's people. He restores wicked teaching. He restores the meaning of the law. He restores uh, what his restoration begins in the midst of us, bringing our true selves back to him. And the goal of the Christian life is not just show up here this morning and check it off your list and say, look at me, I'm a good person. The goal of the Christian life is conformity to Jesus. And here's what's so awesome about this. The Spirit of God helps us be conformed to the image of Jesus. It's all over the New Testament. Romans 8, 29 being one. Conformity to the image of God, who is, who is uh, to the conformity of the image of Jesus, who is the true image of God. And this is what it means to walk in the name of the Lord. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 2, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He came to redeem his people, a remnant into a mighty people, ushering them into a new kingdom marked with people who love God and love neighbor. You see, we often call the cross the great exchange, right? Where Jesus exchanges his righteousness for our sins. It's absolutely true. For our sins, excuse me. But the great exchange leads to the great transition from this age to the next, where God's kingdom has come. And just as we elect a president in November, but is not officially inaugurated till January, so it is with Christ. He has won the victory, yet the, the reign is not yet implemented. The reign of God has come through Christ. And this is why we can have hope. Because when we read the end of the Bible... In Revelation 21 and 22, we see the end of the story saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the hope of the restoration for those in Christ. The kingdom is breaking in, and Jesus and the cross are at the center. And we on this side of the resurrection have this hope. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do do with this? How does this affect your today? I'm going to give you two things that are related. And the first one is this. Is that we're meant to reflect God's kingdom? A little bit about me, um, My natural bent is to seek my own glory. Like whoever decided to give me a microphone today, 
It's not, I mean, like, I, I can teach the word of God, but there's a part of me that try, I'm trying to kill that, that really wants affirmation. And that's really all of our bit, right? But, but for me, what this looks like is I, I really just want to look out for myself and my family. I, I want to be, in a sense, greedy, materialistic, selfish. And these things can be very deceitful because you can do nice things but still want the glory, right? But, but here's the hope in which I cling to. That I have been redeemed by a Savior that runs contrary to all those things. He calls me out of that way and gives me the power to move into spaces I never thought I could. And so me and my wife, we, we walked through some hard spaces in the past year with, with our foster care journey. Just absolute desolate places where I'm on the cusp of these conversations, cusp of meeting these people, and I go, I have no tools in my tool belt to meet these people where they are. I want to retreat from this back to the comfort of my own home. And what that is, is walking in the name of your own God. To your own God, the God that maybe you serve is the God of security. I'm not going to push the boundaries here. Maybe the God that you serve is the God of power. Maybe the God that you serve is the God of morality, just being a good person. You see, walking in the name of the Lord is a way of life that reflects Jesus and the way that he lived. You harness what God has given you to create life for others. You know, we live in a time in which truth is no longer agreed upon. And, and, and here's the reality. I could call you a sinner in need of a Savior, but some people don't even understand what sin is. And that's not for us to just be fearful and say, you know what, we're losing the bedrock. That's not the point. The point is this. If we want to make the gospel compelling, maybe Christians need to start looking like Jesus. Maybe we need to start reflecting the kingdom in which we have been brought into. So maybe we need to forgive as you have been forgiven. Maybe you need to give generously not just money, emotionally, your time, your house. Maybe you need to love relentlessly. Maybe you need to open your home. Maybe you need to repent, openly repent. Maybe you need to get in a community group and be vulnerable with other people. Maybe you just need to prioritize Jesus in your life. Because here's the thing. I could say all those things. You're like, man, I don't know if I could do this. But here's what God, God's kingdom will be made up of. He will be made up of imperfect people redeemed by Jesus simply seeking to walk in the name of their Lord. So if you need a place to walk, the kingdom is open for those who have a limp. The kingdom is open for those who are being pushed to the wayside to say, you know what, I don't really know how to live. You know what, the, the promise of this way of life has really fallen through. The kingdom is open 
You see, Micah 1 through 3 is a people in prosperity, yet they are rotting from their actions, and they look nothing like what God has called them to look like. And one of the ways that we can walk in the name of the Lord is resting in God's provision. Let me just ask you this question. Are you so concerned about the fears of today that you forget the hope to come? Because this is characterizes people that they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plan. And us on this side of the resurrection, guys, I'm reading through the scriptures. We don't have much to fear. On this side of the cross, we have full hope in God's plan. The mystery has been revealed to us. We know who wins. We know the end of the story. There is no telling what will happen corporately or individually in the coming days, in our culture, in our world. But what do we have to fear if this is our hope? What do we have to really bite our nails about? You see, the fit between your deepest desires and the Christian story is striking. Because you were made for a kingdom beyond this one. You were made for a hope beyond anything this world can offer. And there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken or corrupted. And we have the hope of restoration. That this is not all there is. And so simply, I just want to invite you in. That through the hope, the work, and the person of Jesus Christ, we have an offer in front of us to walk in the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I just pray that we, as a church, would rightly respond. Because there is a response that is offered after hearing the hope that you have, that you've given us. And this response could be repentance. If I have reflected this kingdom in this world much more than I have reflected God's kingdom. The response could be, I am limping. And I hear about a God that welcomes the lame. Maybe the response that you have this morning is to trust in Jesus who will bring full restoration to your life. Maybe the response this morning is simply prayer. And I say simply. But maybe the response 
is getting on your knees and asking God to inject the hope that we've read about in his word into your weary soul. You're tired of the news cycle. You're tired of getting beaten down. You're tired of what's coming, happening in your house, all the things that we're burdened with. There's a great hope offered for you today. So Father, I just ask that we would rightly respond to your word. That we would trust you with our lives. That we would seek you. And that we would walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.